What up, family? It's episode 98 of The Genius Life. Welcome aboard. What up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere. Oh my God, another week. I hope you guys are all staying safe, and healthy, and I think most importantly, sane. I know, I know that this can take a toll, uh, mentally speaking, on um, on your fortitude, but uh, I want you guys to know that you are not alone. We are all in this together, and I do have a strong sense that we are going to get through this together um, as well. So sending my love to all you guys and your loved ones. Um, I've been spending a lot of time with my brothers and my dad here in LA, and uh, it's been actually kind of nice. I've been doing a lot of really, really good home workouts, trying not to gain the COVID-15, if you know what I'm talking about. The constant proximity to the kitchen is a real struggle, or at least it can be for some people, but um, I truly feel that this is all going to be over before long. Because if you think about it, we've got the brightest people in the world working on finding a solution to the pandemic. And because of the massive economic costs that this virus has already created. I don't think that there's, I think that everybody is interested in finding a cure for this. So, I mean, it's unfortunate that it has already caused such widespread uh, destruction and havoc um, for the economy. And, you know, people I know are struggling. They, you know, some people that I know have lost jobs from this. And that's a terrible thing. But because of the economic costs, I think that that is a massive fire under the proverbial butts of the brightest people in the world who are working probably day and night to try to, you know, find a solution. So that being said, I have a lot of faith in humanity and I think that we are going to overcome this and I think that we're going to overcome it sooner than later. But that's, you know, I guess there's probably a bit of wishful thinking there as well. So Anyway, this episode of the show is a great one. It features Dr. Terry Walls. Terry Walls is a leader in the field of functional medicine, and she gained notoriety when she published a TEDx talk called Minding Your Mitochondria, which went viral. And that's that was actually my first exposure, not only to her and her ideas, but to the notion that diet can affect the brain in a powerful way. Now, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and she was becoming increasingly handicapped by the condition until she used her medical training and um, actually went beyond her medical training to do a deep dive into nutrition and specifically how to feed the brain. And once she adopted a modified sort of paleo diet that has since become known as the Walls Protocol, she really has changed her life and sent her MS uh, essentially into remission. And she has since helped millions of people around the world. So if you know anybody who is struggling with any type of autoimmune condition, but uh, particularly multiple sclerosis or MS, you are definitely going to want to pay close attention to this episode. We also talk about healthy digestion and how to know if you're pooping properly. We talk about gluten, dairy, and eggs and why she recommends, uh, at least for a time, avoiding those three foods. If you're trying to manage a diet-related problem, and so much more. You're going to want to listen to this more than once for sure. Before we dive in, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode of the show, and that is Ned. Ned makes a line of super high quality CBD infused products. I'm a big fan of their uh, full spectrum hemp oil, which has 1500 milligrams of full spectrum CBD in it. No THC, so it's not going to get you high, which is great because I actually really dislike personally THC, although if you enjoy THC, no judgment. Um, But a lot of people 
uh, anecdotally will report that CBD can help reduce um, anxiety, which I know a lot of people are struggling with right now, um, and also inflammation and pain. Now, I think in many ways the hype exceeds the science where CBD is concerned, but what I always say is that if you're going to try CBD, and there's no doubt a lot of people trying CBD these days, it is a multi-billion dollar a year industry um, at this point, you're going to want to try the best. Don't waste your money on CBD-infused sparkling waters or body lotions, which are not going to have anywhere near a dose required to have an effect. Go for a product that is focused on quality, that is tra transparent in their manufacturing processes, which Ned is. Um, and produces a really clean product without any fillers, additives, unhealthy emulsifiers, and things like that. And if you want to give them a try, all you got to do is go to helloned.com and use promo code GENIUS and you'll get to save 15% off of your first order. helloned.com and uh, promo code GENIUS will get you 15% off of your first order. All right, guys, now we're just seconds away from my chat with Dr. Terry Walls of the Walls Protocol. Um, she's really great. This is a great chat um, and an honor to get to have it uh, with her. But before we get to that, I want to give a shout out to Spokane Deanna, who left this glowing review of the podcast on iTunes. Deanna wrote, Max, love listening to your podcast, and it gets me thinking, changing, and doing all the things. I love your guests, your topics, and ease of conversations you have. I've heard them all, but I will go back and re-listen to glean more information. Thank you for your knowledge. Well, thank you, Deanna, for leaving that kind note. That means the world to me, and uh, even amid the coronavirus pandemic, I aim to continue to put out uh, new and compelling content week after week, every single day, every Wednesday. So make sure that if you are not yet subscribed to the Genius Live podcast that you do so. Also, you guys, I just put out my second book, also called The Genius Life. You can pick that up now everywhere. Um, GeniusLifeBook.com, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Please support the podcast by leaving that rating and review for the show on iTunes or by buying my new book. I would really, really appreciate uh, either or both of those things. The rent doesn't pay itself, you know? Um, all right, without further ado, I'm excited to get into this chat with Dr. Walls. And uh, yeah, let's go. Well, Dr. Terry Walls, thanks so much for being with me on The Genius Life. Hey, thank you for having me. I've been a fan of yours for a long time, and then we became sort of connected over the ether of the internet. But uh, for my listeners who are not familiar with your work, I would love to introduce them to you properly. Um, you, uh, I first became aware of your work in about 2011, which is when your TEDx talk surfaced. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the first exposure for many people um, that food could have an impact on the brain. And uh, it's funny or perhaps not funny but um you know coincidental that that was the uh the year that my mother for the first time was diagnosed with a neurodegenerative condition and so it it hit me at the right time and um you know i just want to say thank you for playing a role in inspiring me to go down the sort of rabbit hole that i eventually did i'm so glad I'm so glad that it could be helpful for you yeah and you've done that for millions of people so um for those who haven't watched the TED talk what's it about yeah so, you know, I, I'm an internal medicine doc, uh, very academic, uh, was deeply skeptical of special diets and supplements and all that complementary alternative medicine. I thought it was a bunch of hooey. Uh, but, you know, God works in mysterious ways. So in 2000, I uh, started having weakness in my left leg, uh, ultimately was evaluated and ended up in neurology. I had MRIs in my brain, my spinal cord, lots of blood tests. Uh, and I had lesions in my spinal cord, one lesion in my brain, and uh, my physician said uh, I had relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. 
Uh, and yeah, I uh, did a quick review of the research. I saw that uh, it's generally a progressive disease. And of course, I, you know, I'm very academic, believe in the best science. So I uh, go find the best MS center in the country, see the best people, take the newest drugs. And despite that, I go relentlessly downhill. Now, I'd been a vegetarian following the low-fat diet uh, for about 20 years. And uh, two years into this, I'm clearly getting uh, steadily worse. I've had one uh, relapse. Uh, Otherwise, it's a slow, steady decline. My physicians tell me about the work of Lauren Cardane. I read his books, uh, and he advocates for the paleo diet um, and after a lot of uh, prayer and meditation, I go back to eating meat. I give up all grain, all legumes, all dairy. So this is a huge change in my diet. Um, and I continue to decline. The next year, I need a tilt recline wheelchair. Um, I take mitoxantrone. I continue to decline. Then I take uh, Tizabri, the new biologic drug. And I was very excited to take that. But I continue to decline. And now it's very clear that the best drugs from the best people in the country aren't stopping my march towards a bedridden, demented life. I also have trigeminal neuralgia, which is a, a bouts of electrical face pain, which makes it difficult to um, uh, to deal with light touch, sound, swallowing, speaking. <clears throat> and that's getting to be more difficult. So I, I, I'm facing um, potentially uh, intractable pain. So that inspires me to go back to reading the basic science, um, and I begin experimenting using supplements. And I figure out that that helps my fatigue a little bit. It slows the speed of my decline, and I am thrilled. Like, oh, my God, I'm I'm figuring stuff out that my physicians are not telling me. Hmm. And then uh, in the summer of 07, I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine. I take their course on neuroprotection. I have a longer list of supplements. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, you know, not a lot's happened, but then I have this really brilliant aha moment. Like, what if I redesign my paleo diet based on what I'd learned from the basic science and functional medicine and the list of supplements? So, where do I get these nutrients from food? So that's again more research. It takes me several more months to get this. Um, Organized, and so I, I start this new way of eating at the very, you know, December 26th of 2007. Now, where I'm at at that point, I'm having brain fog. I'm uh, it's struggling to walk 10 feet using two walking sticks. I cannot sit up in a regular chair anymore. I'm either in bed or in a very special kind of recliner. Um, and as I said, my general neurology is more and more difficult to manage. And that's when I, and it's clear that I'm uh, almost um, uh, being forced into medical retirement because things are so difficult. Wow. I start, I start this new way of organizing my paleo diet now very specifically. And a month later, my pain is gone. And my brain fog is markedly better. And in three months, I'm walking with a cane. That's amazing. And in six months... I bike around the block for the first time in six years. And in 12 months, I'm able to do an 18.5 mile bike ride. So this radically changes how I'm thinking about disease and health. 
it would lead me to radically change how I practice medicine. And, you know, at, at the request of my chair of medicine, he calls me in and, t- you know, t- uh, changes my uh, career path and, and gives me the, the direction to get a case report written up and then case series based on what I was doing in my clinics. And then uh, he directs me to shift my clinical research program. Uh, and so this is now the area uh, that I now study. That's incredible. I, I don't really, you know, my knowledge of MS and its progression is pretty cursory. How could the disease, I mean, could the disease progression have influenced the, you know, the, the, oh, the, the relief that you sure. seem to have experienced? So uh, I had, uh, well, well, in 1980, my trigeminal neurologist started episodes of face pain. In 2000, I had uh, the weakness uh, in my left leg, so that's my uh, first relapse. I have another relapse in 2002, hand weakness uh, very transiently. Uh, and otherwise, it is a relentless downhill course. Mm. Um, and um, so I, I, by 2003, my disease had transitioned to the phase called secondary progressive. There's no more uh, relapse, there's no re- remissions. It's just this uh, progressive decline. Now, into my recovery, I can see that if I am accidentally exposed to gluten, my face pain turns on horrifically, hmm. uh, and I have to go in and get steroids. Um, and if I fly too many times in the month, so I'm exposed to uh, more toxins, my face pain turns on. Wow. So, uh, so as long as I'm you know, meticulously taking care of my diet and lifestyle environmental exposures, you know, I, I feel great. Uh, I continue to get stronger. Um, I continue, if you, if you line up photographs of me, I continue to youthen. My kids laugh. They're like, oh, my God, Mom, you, are you doing a Benjamin Button? You keep looking younger and younger <laughs> every year. That's amazing um, and, and certainly good news. Uh, do you, you mentioned that you, that when you would eat gluten, you would, you know, suddenly start to get flare ups of symptoms. What do you think the mechanism there is? So I probably have, well, actually I know I have the DQ2 and DQ8, uh, allele. Um, so, uh, people who have that, who get sensitized to gluten, uh, then whenever they're exposed to it again, will have a activation of their innate and adaptive immune cells, which then rev up the inflammation in my case, in my microglia, in my brain, hmm. which then activates the level of inflammation in my spinal cord, um, where which activates the um, trigeminal neuralgia. And it takes about 6 to 24 hours of gluten exposure to do that. I, I have made the observation that if I have a toxin exposure, and I, it appear to be uh, really quite sensitive to... Um, uh, air travel. So I, I've sort of mapped out how many hours of air travel I can manage in a month and do okay. Hmm. Um, if I exceed that, my face pain turns on. Wow. You mentioned that uh, you had been on a vegetarian diet for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that, you know, I've had a, a, a nutrition expert, Chris Masterjohn, on my podcast, and he was talking about the fact that certain nutrient deficiencies, you know, don't become, uh, you, you don't notice them for, you know, in certain instances 
for decades, pretty much, you know, after rem removing those nutrients from your diet. Do you think in, in your vegetarian diet might have pulled the trigger? Um, well, it was certainly part of the problem. Um, and I, and I, I want to be mindful that, yes, you, you can construct a vegetarian diet in a healthful way that's balanced and provides all that you need. Uh, for me, the um, lectins in the wheat, because I ate a fair amount of um, wheat and bread, uh, was part of the problem. Uh, and I have a very adverse reaction uh, to that. So it's certainly, it's not everyone, but my interpretation of the vegetarian diet uh, contributed to my illness. I would also speculate that I was low on B12 and was not supplementing uh, with B12. And I've since I've done my genetics and I see that I have several um, SNPs or you know, these um, mutated enzymes for how my body handles the B12 uh, vitamins. And so I have to take a actually an extraordinarily high dose of methyl B12 to keep my homocysteine in the target range. Hmm. Interesting. Well, have you done any research on vitamin D? I know that there's a very interesting oh, yeah, connection yeah. between vitamin D and autoimmunity in general, but multiple sclerosis yeah, specifically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and we follow vitamin D levels uh, in our in our research protocol, and we replace vitamin D to get people up to the top half of the reference range. Now, what what, it, what I do want to point out to your listeners is that in studies, when we measure levels, we see that people who have high levels of vitamin D have uh, better health outcomes, less risk of autoimmunity, less risk of mental health problems, less risk of cancer. Hmm. But when we do supplement studies, people don't do nearly as well as when we do just an observational study. My uh, nutrition team and I uh, have looked at this and tried to figure out, okay, why? So why is it the supplement doesn't do as well as the observational study? And part of that is that for vitamin D requires vitamin A, vitamin K, and magnesium. And so if we give people vitamin D and they don't have enough magnesium, don't have enough vitamin A or, or enough vitamin K2, then you really aren't getting as much benefit. So that's part of why, and you know, I, I think my supplements were a little bit helpful, but it was when I really focused in on the whole food, the eating pattern, um, that that was when I had this dramatic change in my health. Food is much more complicated than uh, just some micronutrients. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some of the foods that you've identified in your research as being particularly uh, neurosupportive? So there, there's two categories you think about this. The foods you need to remove because they activate the microglia and rev up the inflammation in your brain. And for me, that certainly was gluten, casein, and eggs. And those are probably the three most common foods that cause inflammation problems uh, for people in the, um, North America. Hmm. And, then, and then there are the foods that, and when I removed those, that, that was not enough. I had to flood my brain with the, with the building blocks. So um, lots and lots of vegetables, particularly the non-starchy kinds. So the green leafy things like uh, spinach, kale, uh, parsley, cilantro, um, the cabbage, onion, and mushroom family. Uh, those have a lot of sulfur in them. They're great for detox. They're great for uh, brain neurotransmitters. Um, the mushrooms uh, have many, many uh, benefits in terms of 
um, correcting imbalances in the immune cells, hmm. uh, and improving uh, nerve growth uh, factors in the brain. And then the third big category is deeply pigmented uh, vegetables uh, and berries, things like beets, carrots, uh, berries. Uh, Ken, we have so many studies that tell us the more color that you eat, that's the more polyphenols and antioxidants, the lower the rates of obesity, of heart disease, of diabetes, and of cognitive decline. Wow. And what's your stance on, um, I know that your, your diet is inclusive of meat and yes, yeah. and anim, animal products. So you know, I prefer that people have meat because that's a, a whole protein. Um, I, I do recognize that uh, there are people who are uh, deeply committed spiritually uh, to a vegetarian, vegan life. And so I do provide uh, guidance uh, for those individuals. But if people are willing to eat meat, I prefer that they do that. Uh, then we talk about the benefits of grass-fed, uh, wild, um, uh, grass-finished. Uh, we talk about uh, the benefits of organ meat, having uh, liver once a week, having other organs. Uh, heart is particularly particularly good for you. And then uh, bone broth. Because so many of us are so focused on muscle meat, uh, we get a disproportion of um, amino acids, uh, if you have more um, bone broth, you'll get more proline, more glycine. Uh, you have less uh, overstimulation of mTOR. Um, uh, so I, I want people to have bone broth. I want them to have uh, liver once a week. And I prefer that they have heart once a week as well. Hmm. And heart is packed with uh, CoQ10, actually, which helps. Absolutely. It's a, it's a powerful brain antioxidant and helps with energy production. Um, I'm, I was always kind of perplexed about the recommendation to avoid eggs. I mean, is that, is that a recommendation oh, yeah. that so, you make to, to everybody or just if you happen to be sensitive to them? So, um, if, until you take them out, you don't know if you're sensitive. So my advice is everyone should take them out for, and my preference is three months, but if you can at least do it for a month and then af- after the end, have put the yolks back in and see how you do with the yolks. Cause the yolks are where the really great nutrition is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, on Sunday, you have three or four yolks. Um, see how the week goes. If the week goes well, then the following week, you have omelets with the whole egg and see how that goes. And if you have no problems with it, then by all means, uh, keep the eggs back in. But if you have an autoimmune issue, you're more likely to have difficulty with uh, egg protein. And, and in my case, you know, the, I'm so sensitive to the egg protein that uh, if I have anything with eggs in it, my face pain turns on. You know, in about a third, um, it, the, the two most common foods that will turn on the immune system aggressively are gluten and casein. Hmm. The third most common is, is the egg protein. Wow, that's fascinating. So, I mean, for people with any kind of autoimmune condition, it's worth looking into your protocol and cutting out those three right. food categories. Fascinating. But I, but I want to remind everyone, you know, I, I love the paleo diet. I, I implemented the paleo diet in 2002. I hit the wheelchair in 2003 and went straight downhill for the next four, uh, four years. My supplements slowed down the speed of my decline, but it wasn't until I redesigned my paleo diet in a very structured way that I, you know, 
had this radical change uh, in the trajectory of my health and began to you know remarkably improve and surprisingly quickly as well. What are the differences between your protocol and the paleo diet? Well, you know, the paleo diet, as I um, uh, read uh, Lauren Cardane, he really focused on um, taking on, on what to remove. Hmm. So he focused a lot on uh, removing gluten, uh, dairy. Uh, he let eggs stay in. He took out nightshades. He um, uh, talked about taking out uh, nuts and seeds. So I, I did those things. Uh, he didn't provide any real guidance uh, about what to add. Uh, he wasn't uh, talking about um, the structure proportions of the green sulfur color that I just went through. Hmm. Uh, he didn't provide um, any clear guidance as to uh, the organ meats. I, uh, he wasn't, and so it was really the magic when I put all of that together and spent as much effort thinking about what to eat as what not to eat. Yeah. The importance of sulfur and sulfur containing amino acids. I mean, it's sulfur is the backbone for glutathione. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons, which is our body's master detoxifier. And you were talking about the fact that, you know, exposure to environmental toxins seems to, you know, send you into a tailspin. Yes. What are some other ways that we can um, encourage our body's detoxification process other than just eating the raw materials required? Well, um, so we remove things uh, using our uh, liver, so it'll come out in your bile. We uh, do it in our kidneys, so it'll come out in your urine. You'll do it in your sweat glands, uh, so it'll come out in sweat. Hmm. Uh, you breathe it out a little bit through your lungs uh, as well. Um, so really simple ways to think about this is to pee more, poop more, sweat more. Um, and so if you can tolerate heat, doing saunas can be very helpful. If you can... Um, Drink more uh, so that you uh, keep yourself well, well hydrated and having dilute urine. You want to be sure that you're pooping well mm-hmm. um, because about 25% of our detox uh, processes uh, occur with our uh, microbes in our gut. So if, if there's any constipation, then you want to be sure that you're having more uh, fermented vegetables, more non-starchy vegetables, uh, more um, raw vegetables. Uh, so you you have enough fiber. I, I'm not going to be telling you to have whole grains because of the of the uh, lectin problem and the gluten problem, but you could certainly have more kimchi, more sauerkraut, uh, more raw beets, more raw turnips, uh, rutabagas. Uh, those would all do a great job. How can we uh, like eat a diet that promotes um, more frequent poops without making us feel, for lack of a better term? term crappy. I mean, I feel like when uh, when people suddenly start to add more fiber to their diets, I mean, doesn't can't that create problems like bloating and gas? Well, um, so in general, your uh, gut's going to be happier if you can make these changes gradually. Uh, so, uh, and we also have to be in, uh, mindful that the genes that I have, uh, plus the microbes I have, uh, is what determines how much sulfur I can tolerate, how many greens I can tolerate, how many vegetables in general I can tolerate. 
So I, I will tell people, you know, start off, just you know, look at your bowel movements. Are you constipated? Are you pooping rocks, dry logs, um, snakes, pudding, or tea? If you've got pudding or tea, you have too much inflammation in your gut. You need less fiber, less raw vegetables, less fermented vegetables. Hmm. And maybe you're going to have to have more uh, soups um, uh, and uh, broths, stews. If you're pooping snakes, that's perfect. If you're pooping dry logs uh, and rocks, then we need you to start increasing your um, uh, non-starchy vegetables uh, and fermented foods. And then I would, I would keep in mind that a, a reflection of, of the microbes you have and the genes that you have that help metabolize sulfur, that will greatly influence how much sulfur you'll do well in your diet. So we do have some folks in our study who can't do my three cups of sulfur because they just don't feel as well, but they do fine um, by having a smaller amount of sulfur and perhaps emphasizing more mushrooms than more cabbage. So you sort of have to pay attention to your response. But, you know, in general, have people start with a goal of three cups of greens, three cups of cabbage, onion, mushroom, family vegetables, and three cups of deeply colored and then pay attention to their response, realizing that they may have to adjust the greens up or down, adjust the sulfur up or down based on their response. That's super interesting. I mean, I would think that like loose stools would, you know, intuitively you'd reach for to have more fiber to like, you know, firm things up. Right. But you're saying, well, consume, no, wanna... that, that will probably not work. So if hmm. you're having loose stools, what you'll want to do is have some bone broth. Um, have more tea and go more uh, towards a clear liquid diet until things have calmed down. Hmm. Very interesting. What are your thoughts on uh, the, because I'm sure you've been asked this, the, the carnivore diet that people seem to be obsessed with. Yeah. Um, so as I evaluate uh, eating patterns, um, I, I look at uh, what's published in the scientific literature. And then I looked at anthropologically uh, do we have any data on societies that have been eating that way for hundreds and ideally thousands of years, and ideally you know tens of thousands of years? And we do have societies that are uh, carnivore. Uh, these are uh, societies primarily in the far north. Uh, they're eating uh, a lot of um, wild-caught game and fish. That's going to be very high in omega-3s. Uh, there's a little bit of plant material during uh, the summer. Um, most of the food is raw uh, or fermented. Uh, and by having the meats raw, their vitamin C intake uh, and their water-soluble vitamin uh, intake uh, is good. When they start cooking the meat, they, uh, the, they develop screwy. Hmm. And if we look at our Arctic travelers, explorers, the Europeans who uh, traveled in the far north all died. They, they never made it until they started traveling with the um, local natives who taught them how to eat and taught them that you have to eat your meat raw and to eat the fermented fo- uh, meats. Now, a few would die of uh, botulism because uh, uh, of that. However... When the European explorers went down the traditional route of eating 
the way the Eskimos ate and ate uh, the meat and game uh, raw, they thrived, they didn't become ill, uh, and they did extraordinarily well. And they could live on that carnivore diet for months or years. Most of the carnivores that are following that diet now are not, uh, so there's, there's some important differences than what the traditional carnivores are doing. They're having, um, many of them are probably having conventionally grown meat, so that's a very different product than uh, wild-caught meat. Hmm. And uh, they're cooking their meat as opposed to having it raw. Uh, so I don't know that we, we have as much data. Um, the traditional uh, uh, folks, uh, when they have uh, their raw meats, it's not so exclusively muscle meat. Uh, it's a much more robust uh, inclusion of organ meat. Now, they're careful to not eat too much uh, liver because the Eskimos figured out if you ate uh, too much liver, you're going to die of uh, retinol poisoning. Hmm. It's vitamin A. Vitamin A, that's right. That'll kill you. Um, so I, I think it's uh, th- some of the advantages are it'll decrease the uh, sensitivity to the plant proteins which may be an issue for people with autoimmune. So that may be helpful. Um, it may drive up your mTOR, which will increase the risk of um, benign, cancer, benign growths and cancers. Um, it may increase the risk of vitamin C deficiencies. And depending on um, what, what you're doing uh, food uh, meat-wise in terms of preparation, you may uh, develop some deficiencies of the B vitamins uh, if everything is always cooked because you're, you're, you're depleting the water-soluble vitamins. Yeah, and also, I mean, co- cooking meat, aside from depleting water-soluble vitamins like vitamin C, um, which might be present in small amounts in raw meat, also creates you know these undesirable compounds like heterocyclic amines and... Um, you know, AGEs uh, and the like. So, yeah, it's an interesting, th- th- those are interesting considerations. Um, you know, when you hear people that are just going gung-ho on the barbecue, you know, like meat, and that's like their, you know, that's well, the bulk of their diet. It, now, if you do uh, grill meat, it, it, it's sort of interesting that it appears if you marinate your meat uh, in uh, lots of greens hmm. and you grill it, and you have it with cooked greens or a huge, huge green salad, the greens appear to be um, reducing the harms of the AGEs considerably. They act like a buffer. As a buffer. Very so, interesting. So I, I, I like to marinate all of my meat uh, in a um, herbs um, uh, marinade. I'll grill it, and then I always serve it with cooked greens so I can mitigate that potential harm. I love that. Um, you mentioned the, you know, the, the difference, I guess, in the amino acid profile of muscle meat versus the aminos that you find primarily in bone broth. Can you talk a little bit sure. about, about that and striking that balance so as not to overactivate mTOR? Well, uh, it would, and that's also one of the reasons why I'm not really keen on taking branched-chain amino acids. Um, I know a lot of uh, bodybuilders will use branched-chain amino acids to get more growth in muscles. Hmm. But that does stimulate mTOR. Uh, and the more mTOR that we have, uh, it appears to increase 
the risk for autoimmunity, uh, and it appears to increase your risk for cancer uh, in benign growth. Uh, and uh, interesting observation uh, is if you have more proline, more uh, glycine, that uh, leads to a more balanced ratio between the branch chain amino acids and the proline and glycine. So m- my approach then is to be sure that I have uh, bone broth uh, on a regular basis. Now during the winter, it's just more. I, I have a lot more soups and stews um, uh, than I will have during the summer. Um, I'll still have some, but I, I end up doing uh, a lot more uh, soups and stews. And I'm generally having bone broth uh, on a daily basis uh, during the winter. You know, uh, and we've always got a variety of uh, broths going. Love that. Would you say that for your average person, um, you know, who maybe, well, in the warmer months is not drinking as much bone broth, but just as a general sort of health, uh, principle to, to integrate collagen, um, like a collagen supplement into their diet well, if they're eating a diet that, that incorporates, um, you know, liberal amounts of, of muscle meat? You certainly w- would want to have more collagen. Uh, I completely agree with that. Um, I, I, I'll step back for a moment. When we look at the uh, latest research on anti-aging, uh, brain health, nerve growth factors, uh, calorie restriction, Fasting, time-restricted eating, uh, intermittent fasting, periodic fasting are e- extremely powerful at uh, improving mitochondrial function, improving brain health, uh, slowing uh, aging. And, and part of that is when we have uh, a lot of protein or if we have a lot of carbs – that uh, sends, sends us down a pathway that uh, accelerates uh, aging. Now, a lot of the paleo world and the uh, carnivore world know that diets high in carbs are very inflammatory and drive up insulin. And you know they will bash the vegetarians because uh, they know to be very concerned about a high-carb diet. But what many of these people uh, don't, recognize is that protein will also stimulate insulin. Hmm. And protein, a high-protein diet can be inflammatory as well. Uh, So if you don't want to have uh, that level of inflammation, collagen will help some, but you need less less protein, less carbs, more fat, and you don't want to be over um, providing overnutrition. If, if you overnourish the body, you're going to increase the, the insulin, you're going to accelerate aging. Now, you don't want to starve yourself so much that you don't have uh, the proteins that you need to do the maintenance of the wear and tear of everyday life. Um, but we seem to do the very best if we could do something called metabolic switching. So I'll, I, I may fast or severely calorie-strict, so now I'm in ketosis, and um, I my insulin is really low, my mTOR is really low, and I do that for a day or, or several days or a week. And then I come off that uh, fasting period, and I will have a higher-protein diet for a couple of days. Now my stem cells are awake, and they're 
rebuilding a, a newer, younger uh, Terry Saul by Saul. So I, I like that a lot. Hmm. My my brain is reconnecting, being revitalized, and um, my heart's being revitalized. My liver, pancreas is being revitalized. My bone marrow is being revitalized. Uh, and more stem cells are being dumped into my circulation, repairing whatever wear and tear uh, that exists. So my my preference then uh, for, for myself and for my patients is to cycle between intermittent periods of a higher fat diet that's calorie-restricted, modestly higher protein diet, so I could... So my stem cells could go out and be rebuilding the new younger Terry. Hmm. And then uh, occasionally a higher carbohydrate diet that so my um, metabolic machinery is adept in all three fuel fuel lines. Yeah, I mean, if you're performing, for example, high intensity exercise, you definitely want to be, you know, efficient at burning carbohydrates, which provide that sort of fuel for glycolytic, you know, high intensity exercise. Um, so how do we, how do we integrate this on a, on a daily basis? Is it, you know, is it, do you, do you practice time restricted feeding? And then while you're feeding, you know, you can basically eat what you want in terms of protein. So long as you're avoiding, you know, the grains and things like that. Um, what I, uh, I I like to meet people where they're at. Hmm. So, um, because I want them to be successful. Uh, and so, uh, the first thing I'll have them do is to move to a low glycemic index diet, get rid of the sugar and the you know uh, simple starches, uh, and then uh, improve the quality of their diet. Then uh, once once we get that dialed in, then I'll encourage them to think about time restricting their uh, eating, uh, and with the goal of getting the amount of uh, the window that they're eating to less than twelve hours, and then uh, ideally to less than six hours. And then if they're really bold, you might get it down to a two-hour window. Wow. And, and uh, that's what I typically do, a two-hour window where I eat. Uh, and uh, so when they're doing that and that's going well, they might decide they want to do that uh, five days a week or one day a week or however many days that they're willing to do. Then the next thing that they could do is introduce the periodic fast where now maybe two days – three days, four days, five days, that they're either doing a severe calorie restriction or a water-only fast. But it, once once you decide to go down the periodic fast route, I, I really want people to be uh, working with their primary care physician because uh, now I, I, I want to be sure that your blood pressure is good, your blood sugar is good, and do we have to monitor for any side effects uh, related to any medication that you're using. But again, now... When you add the periodic fasting, that's a very potent anti-aging strategy. It's a very potent strategy for improving that metabolic uh, resilience, that metabolic switching back and forth. And for the people who who love meat, um, that same population is very concerned and skeptical about people who are having a hard-carb diet. Hmm. And what what we're not recognizing is that the high-protein diet likewise stimulates high insulin uh, and can be inflammatory as well. Yeah. How do we, okay, so two questions. How do we reconcile this, the fasting? Is the, is the fasting protocol like a general recommendation um, 
for for people who want you know a longer health span and lifespan or is it specifically like meant as a therapeutic diet and i ask because i've had some people on you know some some experts on my podcast who say that for women in particular those kinds of prolonged fasts can actually be uh you know kind of maladaptive from the standpoint of hormones maybe um, menstruation now now we're talking about slightly different things here Hmm. if you're doing a ketogenic diet long term for anyone, the the signals you're sending to your cells is there's not enough uh, nutrition here. I, I'm living off my body. My thyroid's going to feel like, okay, I got to get a little closer towards a hibernation state. My sex glands are going to say, well, not a good time to reproduce. I ought to dial back my uh, testosterone and estrogen. But to all the listeners, that's not reliable birth control. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and so... That will mess your hormones, both your thyroid and your sex hormones long term. It's also going to increase your risk for uh, infection. Hmm. Now, there are medical conditions where, in fact, it's a, it's a trade-off I, I will recommend. Someone who has refractory seizure disorder, yes, I will recommend that. Someone who is dealing with a, a cancer or very high-risk cancer, or they've had a previous cancer, um, will keep them in ketosis for a long time. I would much rather people think about this as a hormetic response where we're putting in intermittent stress. So it's sort of, again, think about our ancestral mothers and fathers. Intermittently, there wouldn't be any food. So if the hunt wasn't good, you'd have to live off your own fat. Uh, Or you had winter, and if the hunt wasn't good, you have to live off your own fat. If the hunt was good, you got meat. So you could have a high-protein diet during the winter, but then during the summer, you're going to have some protein uh, and carbs. And so there's a lot of uh, cyclic variation to our uh, diets uh, from our ancestral mothers and fathers. That was, is probably, uh, again, my simplistic way of thinking, uh, is probably very beneficial for us. And that's how our uh, genes evolved, going between periodic fasts, high-protein diets, and a more balanced uh, protein-carbohydrate diet. Yeah, that makes, I mean, total sense from an ancestral standpoint. You probably wouldn't be at your most fertile 365 days a year. Um, Correct. Yeah. So to try to attain that today doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense um, in that context. Yeah. So I I am very selective about when I'm going to recommend ketosis long term. I think episodic ketosis... um, uh, if you want to do it daily through time restricted, so you're in ketosis part of the day, I think that's fine. If you want to do it with periodic fast, I think that's great. If you want to do it during winter, like our ancestral mothers and fathers did, I think that's fine. Uh, and if you have a clinical reason to want to do it for years, then there, there may be a clinical reason to do that. But for the average person, I do not think that's uh, – I don't think we have evidence – to recommend that, certainly not for a population. Right. But I mean, if you're eating only within a two-hour window every day, I mean, you're inevitably going to be in ketosis. Correct me if I'm wrong. I will be in ketosis for part of the day. If I, so if, if, I'm, if I'm eating a low glycemic index meal, um, I'm going to have uh, carbs. I'll have some protein. And I will be out of ketosis for uh, probably six hours, maybe as long as 12 depending on, on what I eat. But after 12 hours after that meal, I'll be back in low-level ketosis. So again, that is intermittent ketosis. Yes. 
that's that's actually right on target with what I with what you know the recommendations that I make um, in my book Genius Food. So I'm I'm very yes, happy. I love I love that book. No, <laughs> that was a that was a lovely book. Oh, thanks so much. I appreciate that. Um, a labor of love, but yeah. Uh, um, yeah, so I mean, you began your research uh, in 2007. You know, that was that was more than a decade ago, and you've you've put out all this amazing work on the topic. And I know you're now uh, funded at the University of Iowa, which is amazing. Yeah. You've got a multi million dollar grant to continue your research, which you know I'm just so um, so grateful for. How has your you know what what like over the over the past decade? I mean, how have your views changed? I mean, from even your 2011 TEDx talk. I mean, what are some new things that you've uncovered, maybe ways and, you know, areas where you've sure. shifted your thinking? So uh, my uh, thinking on ketosis is certainly much more nuanced. Um, I, I think we have to monitor uh, the lipids and figure out, uh, can MCTs oil work or not? Uh, do we have to use olive oil and time-restricted feeding, periodic fasts instead? Uh, I, I am much more uh, open to calorie restriction uh, as a strategy, and intermittent calorie restriction as a strategy. Uh, the other things that I've I've learned, uh, and I get this from my patients, that understanding behavior change is so critical in uh, helping. So I, I did a lot more research on uh, the behavior change uh, science, motivational interviewing, uh, I've developed a much more detailed and nuanced uh, framework for understanding how we help people uh, change uh, their uh, diet uh, in their lifestyle patterns. And the addictive nature of food and the addictive nature of processed foods that are industrialized food supply has been designed to drive addiction, drive overconsumption. And of course, at the expense of our health. Yeah, I mean, and especially in terms of the brain, the preponderance of grain and seed oils in the food supply. Um, what are your thoughts on those? Are they, you know, are they well, as, as as damaging as people make them out to be, or do you take a more you know, moderate stance? Uh, certainly, grain. Uh, a lot of the grain has gluten in it, which can be very inflammatory. Uh, a lot of the grain. Uh, then drives up insulin, which uh, increases glucose, uh, which uh, is associated, again, with that higher insulin level, uh, more brain atrophy. Uh, and so that glycemic load, glycemic index, uh, insulin, gluten, all of that, uh, I think, is a big problem. Now, the next question, uh, seed oils, um, relatively new compounds, uh, there, there are several issues with the seed oils. Uh, a, a number of the oils are processed using hexane, uh, which is then uh, extracted, but you can't extract all of it. So we're, we have uh, hexane uh, uh, solvents uh, introduced into our food supply. That's uh, one problem. Then we fry these uh, foods with these oils that lead to more trans fats in our foods uh, that are incredibly inflammatory uh, as well. Uh, so I, I think, yeah, I, I really prefer that people use the uh, saturated fats for cooking, use olive oil uh, that has not been adulterated with uh, seed oils, 
uh, so extra virgin olive oil cold uh, uh, as a, a much healthier uh, and an appropriate oil. Absolutely. I was in a restaurant uh, at the airport a uh, couple or this past weekend, actually, and I saw they had sort of an open kitchen and there were jugs of um, what, you know, said in big letters, extra virgin olive oil blend, you know, like proudly pro- proclaiming we use extra virgin olive oil, this blend in our cooking. And I actually walked up to the kitchen to look, you know, and inspect what that blend was. And it was actually about 25 percent extra virgin olive oil and the rest was uh, I forget, it was either canola oil or safflower oil or one of those. Trouble, yeah. Trouble. Um, all right, so we've learned for people that are struggling with autoimmunity, but particularly, uh, you know, multiple sclerosis, that, you know, some of the first things that you want to do, you want to cut out the gluten, cut out the dairy, um, eggs, you know, which is, uh, I think, is an interesting um recommendation and for everybody generally you want to pee more you want to poop more and you want to sweat more so these are all like these are all really powerful recommendations um in terms of uh you know like lectins and things like that which which we've mentioned a few times um where do you stand on that bandwagon like the nightshades and uh so i would say about 80% 80% of my folks uh, do fine with uh, either my level one diet or level two diet. Uh, 20% will still be symptomatic. And those folks, I will take out the nightshades. Hmm. Um, uh, the other route that we can go is to have them, if they're going to have nightshades, cook them in a pressure cooker uh, using high pressure. Uh, and that denatures the lectins. Uh, and if I happen to have a vegetarian who's going to still need legumes uh, and gluten-free grains. I have them cook everything in a pressure cooker, uh, and that makes it more manageable. I I don't think uh, it's realistic to tell people to to go on an elimination diet that takes out all of the lectins uh, uh, as as their initial diet, Uh, because we're making such a radical change. You're making it so difficult for them to be successful. I would much rather them start with gluten-free, dairy-free, egg-free, lots of vegetables, either with meat or without, according to their spiritual beliefs, uh, and then see how they do, and then progress to a nightshade-free diet and a more low-lectin diet. With, with the caveat, clinically, I may know, because they have inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatoid arthritis or a autoimmune disease affecting their joints, that they will likely need to be on the elimination diet. And that person, I will tell them up front that you're probably going to need an elimination diet. And if you want to start there, we'll help you. If you want to start with my level one or level two diet and see how you do, then we can start there. Because I, I need to work with, give people a place to start that they are willing to start at. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I... I also think that cutting out gluten, at least for me, speaking personally, cutting out gluten, very easy. Cutting out dairy, very easy. But eggs, I would say, for many people, um, you know, if you, if, if you cut, well, if you cut them out and you feel better, you can add them back in to see if you have a flare-up. And if yes, you, yes. And, and if you don't, then by all means, bring the, the eggs back. Because I feel like the benefits yes. of eating eggs are probably going to outweigh the risks the for egg, most people. Uh, take them out for a month. Or, or three, depending on what you're wanting to do. And then put them back in and see if you do well with them. Because they are fabulous nutrition. They have a lot of great, great nutrition, particularly the yolks. 
Are the problems with eggs, um, do they persist through cooking? Because I know that egg whites are problematic, but only when they're raw. Yes, it's uh, egg whites are problematic uh, if you are uh, sensitive to them. Got it. And, and the other thing I would remind people is that um, you know most of the eggs are conventionally grown, are conventionally raised uh, eggs that will have a fair amount of... Um, Exposure to uh, uh, corn, Roundup, arsenic. Uh, so, a pastured egg, uh, egg from a free-range chicken, certainly is a much more healthful food item if you're not sensitive to the protein. Right. We also talked about um, vitamin D and how important vitamin D is, but it's essential that you make sure that you're getting adequate magnesium, vitamin A, and vitamin K2 in your diet. Um, For people that, uh, do you have a range that you like to see in terms of people's blood levels of vitamin D? You know, uh, to make it really simple, uh, that you want to be the top half of your reference range. And if you have liver once a week, you'll get your vitamin A. And if you have... uh, cooked greens every day or a huge dinner plate sized salad every day, you'll probably have enough vitamin K too. Got it. And in terms of a vitamin D supplement, do you, uh, I actually remember seeing there was a small clinical trial using very high yeah. dose vitamin D, um, and, um, and patients with MS. I would use sunlight. sunlight. Go get it. Go get, go get a tan. Uh, that's the safest. You don't have to worry about, uh, overexposure. Otherwise I want you to get a vitamin D level and then monitor, um, your level and your dose, uh, because the the dose range is between a thousand and ten thousand, depending on your genetics and your skin pigment. Yeah, so it's, people might have genetics that if they, you know, even when supplementing with very high doses, they might not see their vitamin D levels budge. But uh, you know, some people might have the observe the opposite effect where they could, you know, not supplement and not even get very much sun and they'll see their vitamin D levels within the normal range. Do you, how, um, I mean, conc- uh, that is why it's so important to get your vitamin D levels so you can have, hmm. uh, guidance, uh, because we, you know, we check levels, uh, uh, in all my clinical trials, people come, people come in and are sometimes their D is, uh, extremely low. They're, um, severely low, and they often come in uh, uh, with elevated levels uh, above the reference range and, and uh, markedly above the reference range uh, as well because they've been supplementing blindly without following levels. Right. Do you recommend gene tests or do you just simply recommend getting your D levels checked? You know, um, I would just get your D levels checked. Now, if, if you're curious and you want to do uh, genetic testing for a more nuanced understanding, I think that's fine. Um, but we've done very well just getting the basic vitamin D level and following that. It, you know, so I'd get vitamin D, lipids, homocysteine, uh, glucose, A1C. And these are the kinds of tests that you could probably get from your primary care doc. Right. Very easy tests to get. Well, we're just about out of time, Dr. Walls. I um, just want to say I appreciate your work. And uh, you know, thank you for sharing your insights with my audience. I know that my, my yeah. listeners my listeners really appreciate it. I've got just one last question for you before we wrap. Yeah. Um, but before we get to that, how can um, people that are listening get in touch with you over social media and where can they find your yeah. latest uh, your latest book? So uh, Instagram, uh, Dr. Terry Walls, D-R-T-E-R-R-Y-W-A-H-L-S. 
Facebook and uh, Twitter, uh, Terry Walls, uh, my website, terrywalls.com. Uh, and the book is The uh, Walls Protocol, A Radical New Way to Treat All Chronic Autoimmune Conditions. Uh, and it really, even if you had the first book, yes, the new book has so much more information on fasting, health behavior change, neurorehab. It's well worth your investment. Yeah, I second that. Um, so the last question that gets asked to everybody that's on this show, Dr. Walls, take it wherever you'd like. What does it mean to you to live a genius life? To give back to the world. You know, right now, my mission is to help everyone understand that we could help usher in an epidemic of health by teaching people that diet matters, meditation matters, uh, walking matters, and that our uh, daily health behaviors are the most powerful determination of health. Couldn't agree more. And what can we expect from uh, your studies that you're doing at the University of Iowa? Well, um, the next study that we've got going that's so exciting, we're comparing in the newly diagnosed MS patient uh, diet and lifestyle, essentially the Wallace Protocol, to the standard of care in the newly diagnosed MS patient. Uh, and so we'll be getting baseline walking, thinking, vision measures, and baseline uh, MRIs. We'll uh, either observe the usual care group getting their drugs, uh, we'll support the uh, diet and lifestyle intervention group, and at a year they'll come back, we'll repeat everything, and compare the two groups. And if I can show that these two groups are equivalent, that will change everything. Incredible. What's the, uh, the, the population number, if you don't mind me asking? Well, uh, we are right now our goal is to get 20 in each group uh, uh, in the next year. We have another gift that uh, has been pledged, uh, and that would allow us to get uh, 40 in each group, which would be a, a huge deal. That's That'd amazing. Be really quite lovely. Wow, that's amazing. Well, I look forward to seeing your published results. And uh, yeah, again, just thank you for uh, for doing what you do and for putting this information out in the world. I know it's um, you know lit a candle for millions of people out there, uh, and myself being one of them. So again, thank you very much. And to all you guys out there in podcast land, thank you as always for tuning in. I value your time and attention. Please take a moment to share this episode of The Genius Life. Highlight your favorite uh, quote from Dr. Walls or I. Tag us each. We very much appreciate that. Pick up her new book. And don't forget, pee, poop, and sweat. Crucially important, you guys. I'll catch you on the next episode. Peace. Peace.